Hi, this is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats, dedicated to bringing you stories told by boats of all sizes and shapes. Today, this is our sixth month on air, and what a sixth month this has been. This episode is entitled, Man and Their Dinghies. When we started Conversations with Classic Boats in May of this year, in the teeth of the pandemic, we assumed we would be touring regatta sites, interviewing fortunate owners of esteemed traditional sailing yachts. That was then, now it's different. We came to learn Classic is everywhere, and it can come in huge packages like the AC Boat Reliance, and small packages, even micro three-foot packages, like the Nantucket radio sailing rockets of the last episode. But what about small classics? Pint-sized vintage boats. Traditional watercraft. They've been part of boating since Neanderthal man and a pile of reeds held together with mud and animal hide. These mini classics have many varieties. Names like punt, wary. Varietals like whitehall and peapot. The simple name for small boats for rowing and sailing in the service of their owner's yachts, dinghies. If yacht was the Dutch word that came into the English language in the late 17th century with Charles II, arguably the first royal yachtsman in modern history, the expression for dinghy was not far behind. That's why this episode is man and their dinghies, like man and his dog. The dinghy is sailing man's best friend. Today, it is mankind's most trusted water transportation. We all have a soft spot in our boating heart for a dinghy. We all have a story that involves a dinghy. We all had a first dinghy. But we know from the millennial and Gen Z to be very careful today to employ the proper adjective, mine, yours, our, their. When it comes to the smallest boat in the family, the typically feminine identification, her or she, that applies to yachts and ships, does it need to be suspended? The boat at the end of the painter is often just the dinghy. The dinghy is not she. The dinghy is it. That dinghy has a rich history from rowing boats, from armed services designs, to plain old home-built designs, to the elegant works of the most famous naval architects. But first, a word from our sponsor, Windcheck Media, with its Windcheck magazine, seen from New York to the Cape. See Wincheck for their articles. See my Model Classic Instant Classic article in the November-December issue for their up-to-date calendar of events and all their regular features. Check out the Wincheck website with its ship's log carrying all the breaking news. And of course, a shout-out to Mad Martha at Team One Newport. During our last podcast, she was busy putting together customized COVID face coverings so that you could sail your summer regattas safely. Now she's moved on to a wide variety of clothing and coverings to extend your outdoor dining window into this warmish La Nina fall. Look for all of these additions on Team1Newport.com or give them a call in their newly renovated Thames Street store. In this day of breaking news, we have our own scoop, a scoop on a 71-year-old dinghy. And this episode has an exclusive an interview with the family members of the factory that launched a thousand, many thousands of nine-foot snub-nosed craft with their family name on them. That would be the Dyers. The place would be the Anchorage, Warren, Rhode Island, close to the Barrington slash Warren River, near where I lived in the 1960s. The dinghy in question is the Dyer Dow, the nine-footer. The picture of the dinghy in Conversations with Classic Boats website, says it all. I took it during this crazy COVID summer in the Easy Street Basin in Nantucket Harbor. While peeling eelgrass off the keels of DF-95 model boats, I spied a vintage Dyer Dow sunning itself while our Episode 3 Nantucket Radio Sailing Regatta swirled around it. And what did it say on the back of this nine-footer? What else? J-boat. That's dinghy chutzpah. The little boat that can, the little boat that does. 
a small piece of American watercraft history. That is the classic for this episode. Let's start off in the 19th century at a familiar spot for past episodes. Out the Barrington slash Warren River, eight miles south down Narragansett Bay to the fountainhead of small boat design in the 19th century, Harrisoff of Bristol. You've heard about the biggest racing boats in American history being built in Bristol, but they all had something in common. In one shape or form, they had a dinghy, a compact rowing boat for the carrying of people and their stuff. In fact, America's Cup rules specified the need for a dinghy or two. Right there on the deck of Mighty Reliance was Captain Nat's best take on portable rowing transportation, i.e. a rowing boat, a dinghy. Roll the tape to February 2020. I visit the old curiosity shop of very small boats at Mystic Seaport. I actually got the idea for this episode in the pre-COVID cold of February. I was going to see the very end of Mystic Seaport's fabulous Turner exhibit, and I took the afternoon under the guidance of John Urban, the Seaport's development czar, and his colleague, Chris Freeman. They had tantalized me with stories of one million square feet of Mystic Watercraft collectibles. What I saw in the Thompson Building, as it is called, inspired me to tackle the subject of classic personal watercraft. In a large brick former factory, the Mystic Seaport Museum has an enormous warehouse of donated treasures. An old curiosity shop, as I said, of seemingly every small watercraft from the Gilded Age through the Golden Age of small boat 20th century. This collection must number 2,000 items, including boats, and incredible old motors. And it was the creation of John Gardner, an early pioneer of maritime collection, whose photo graces the entrance of the diorama of the Mystic River off the green in the seaport. Maynard Bray, described previously for his role in Mystic and HMM collections, Wooden Boat Sage, took it from there. The catalog to this brick cavern of small boat history third edition published in 2001, is a graduate course in primarily wooden small boats of North America. If Roger Torrey Peterson, the famous burger, had published a guide to small watercraft, this would be it. The title, Mystic Seaport Watercraft, first edition published 1979, second edition 1986, and I am in possession of the third edition, 2001. The frontspiece reads, To the memory of Joseph Patrick Gribbins, 1939-2001, as Director of Publications at Mystic Seaport. Whew, take a breath. This book could wear you out. The table of contents of this weighty book explicates small books the way the American Museum of Natural History takes on dinosaurs. With excruciating detail and scholarly humor, our attention was to the hundred pages dedicated to rowing and sailing small craft, not including the 30 pages of sailing canoes at the back. The names of these classics roll off the tongue, as slippery and lovely as these boats look. Just listen to the name. Skiffs, dories, wherries, dory skiffs, dory tenders, whitehall, peapod, rowing canoe. Smack, Yacht Tender, 16 pages of Yacht Tenders. From page 148 to, to page 276, the watercraft parade of dinghies, sailing and rowing, goes on and on. I cannot do it justice in this podcast. You must, on a cold winter night, get the book and sit with it. And in our tour, at the very north end of the North Building, we spot a collection of craft which represent the record of the 20th century winter use of the dinghy, the crazed passion we know as frostbiting. In a rack, three boats high by a dozen boats wide, every model of frostbiting dinghy known to man, D-Class, Penguin, Interclub, and of course the Dyer Dink and Dow, wooden and fiberglass, sit on display. 
a rack of frostbiting boats. Look at the website for the pictures. It tells the story of the development of the frostbite dinghy in the Northeast in the early 1930s. There is a lifetime of nautical exploration in this Gardner and Bray collection. But our appetite was whetted, and our old friend, the Herrschaft Marine Museum, we knew would oblige us. During the summer 2020, going online and reading the excellent online Lima project done by the Herrschaft Museum, their replaying of off-center harbor's Herrschaft dinghy videos caught my attention. It got me thinking about contrasts. A few years ago, Reliance, largest AC boat. Last episode, model boats. What would have to be the classic medium? What are boat owners as sentimental about as their mothership itself, the baby, the dinghy? Off-Center Harbor and their guru, Maynard Bray, with a voice to me that channels Alex Guinness as Obi-Wan Kenobi, crossed with a Down East mare, has an entertaining library of videos, hundreds, they say a thousand. Watching them is like eating salt and vinegar potato chips. If it's for you, you can't get enough of them. Personally, they are jelly beans combined with key lime pie, a delicious treat to be savored in regular measured doses. But why are we surprised that one of the modern scholars of Harrisoff would take the time to explicate Captain Nat's smallest boats? One video segment features a graceful eight-footer, Nathaniel, built for one of NJH's daughters. Bray goes on to explicate the origins of the Columbia rowing boat, most likely there to satisfy an America's Cup requirement for the tender on deck. But remember, the Gilded Age owner, they came to Bristol for their tenders and their rowing boats, not just high-speed launches and mega yachts. But how many people know the other dinghies are in Rhode Island? A mile or so up the Barrington slash Warren River, a leisurely sail in 1900 from Bristol Harbor out around Papasquash Point and north along the shores of the Colt property to the mouth of the river, float right up on the Warren side, across from the fancy homes on the Barrington side, in a gritty Portuguese town, lies a white 20th century overgrown shed. Say it, the Anchorage, the Westminster Abbey of Dinghies. Say it, Dyer Land. The grandchildren of Bill Dyer, a boating building iconoclast who saw the value of fiberglass after World War II, hosted me on a late September afternoon with a wicked southwest gale spinning the boats in the Barrington River to the west of their ancestral fiberglass fabricating factory. This is the temple of very small boats. Dyers, tens, nines, seven nines, seven elevens. Those are the plans and photos on the walls of their airplane hangar of a headquarters, dedicated to the output of well over 10,000 of the most classic of dinghies, better known in the yachting community as dinks, dows, and midgets. First, a quiz. Number one, what was JFK leaning against behind him while piloting a Camden, New Jersey built Elko PT-109? Number two, what is the con oldest continuously built boat in fiberglass? Number three, what model has the U.S. largest frostbite fleets? The answer lies in one of the Dyer products, what today's buyer, Dyer proprietors call the nine-footer, the one we call the Dyer Dow, a name that has rolled over the tongues of sales 2 to 92. A brief history of the House of Dyer, the marine couturier of American dinghy style, Imitations have followed, but nothing is quite the same. An American original, as American as the Colt Revolver, the Model T, the DC-3, Brock's Candy Cornet Halloween. You get the idea. A genuine American innovation in design and engineering in the medium of FRP, fiberglass reinforced plastic, 
or as they called it in 1949, resin plastic. The company is 90 years young this year. Dyer Boats. Born in the Depression, the Anchorage Dyer headquarters started in Providence as a dealer for the brand new boat lines of Elko and Chriscraft, while building some small boats on the side. The company moved to its current location at 57 Miller Street on the Warren waterfront where the river splits and turns west in the direction of the Barrington Yacht Club. In the 1930s, Warren along with Bristol, they were typical Swamp Yankee towns, having declined from shipping to mills to disrepair. Today, the 19th century ship captain's houses up from the river, many of them are under renovation. New England builds back. I joke about the Warren River because I spent my former middle school years in Barrington across the river. We called it the Barrington River. But dire boats moved south to Warren after the great New England hurricane of 38, when water was 20 feet deep in the old stone bank, or 20 feet high, in downtown Providence. Needless to say, waterfront real estate seemed very reasonable in Warren at the time. It is this boxy hangar of a boat plant that has produced more than 6,000 nine-foot dinghies, both rowing and sailing, since 1943, when it it went fiberglass in 1949, and some 2,000-plus 10-foot sailing dinghies since 1934, converted to fiberglass in 1954. That, along with 400-odd of their 29-foot Dyer bass boats, which have been all fiberglass since 1955. The life of Bill Dyer, founder, reads like the Henry Ford of the Rhode Island waterfront. He was born in 1895, about 20 years after Nat Harrisoff joined the family firm in Bristol, same year as my grandfather, in City Island. A native of Providence, he was a pilot instructor in World War I, then in the cotton brokerage business, before his interest in boating led him to establish the Dyer Motorcraft Corporation in 1924. He sold the early motorized watercraft brands of the Roaring Twenties, Elko, and the brand new Chriscraft. In 30, he organized the Anchorage in Providence. There came the original Dyer 10, the dink as we call it, wood planked, done on the board of Phil Rhodes. Nine footer was the first one in fiberglass. Okay. And then the 7-Eleven, or actually... The midget. The 7-9. Right. Yeah, right. Midget. Right. Um, Came in fiberglass. And then, within a year or so, the 7-Eleven, which was just the... I don't know if you know the difference between no, the I two. No, I don't, no. The 7-9 is what we refer to as the low shear mm-hmm. version of the boat. Okay. It was designed to fit under the boom on a sailboat. Oh, okay. Clearance. Okay. And most, well, many, if not most, of the early ones had the translucent bottom because that's where it was sitting over a ha- It was sitting over a companionway. Oh, those are seven nines yeah. that have that? Oh, yeah. that's interesting. Never never heard that. Yeah. Yeah. You can get it in the 7-Eleven, too. Yeah. So then the 7-Eleven, and then the 10-footer. So we're around, I think the 10-footer is right around 54. Okay. We went to fiberglass. When the U.S. War Department asked him to bid on a tender for Elko PT boats, the Dyer Dow was conceived in 1943, originally in plywood. It was after visiting Owens Corning at War's End that he came back to Warren saying he had seen the future, and that future was something called fiberglass. Bill Dyer was among the godfathers of the fiberglass-reinforced plastic boat revelation. Glass cloth and polyester resin mixed to make a solid, flexible hull. And he was a character. His winter home in the Florida Keys was the yacht Tribor, which he had sailed to Florida and docked close enough to the bulkhead that his wife Helen could build terraced flower beds around the boat. When he died in 1964, the controls passed through the hands of several of the mothers to the oldest grandson, Dyer Jones, who ran the company from the early 1970s until he retired in the early 1990s. We knew Dyer from his commodoreship of Ida Lewis Yacht Club out on the rock in Newport after my father had held that job and for his continual involvement in America's Cup and the formative days 
of the Harrisoft Marine Museum in Bristol. Today, Tad Jones, second grandson of the founder, runs the shop. At 63, he is philosophical about what we've always called in our family the curse of fiberglass. In an interview in 2007, Tad said with his characteristic delivery, one of the things I'm increasingly fond of saying is that nobody knows how long fiberglass is going to last for, and I assume a lot of our boats are going to be around a long time after I'm gone. Anna Jones, who we introduced previously, refers to the Dyer legacy in very sentimental terms. To her, Bill Dyer was Gramps, and Helen Dyer, his wife, was Grammy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first one was belonged to our grandfather. Okay. 201. Okay. August of 44. August of 44. Yep. And then... So the, so the so plywood ones got built for about five years, and then they went to fiberglass in 49. Looks like... And then... Dinks started in 34, and they went to fiberglass in 54, you said, right? Yeah, they went, they went, they didn't go to, they went to fiberglass later. Tad and Anna Jones didn't grow up as boatyard rats. In fact, they were raised in the Midwest and only came to live in Rhode Island as adults. Tad said he moved to Philadelphia in the mid-60s and started visiting Rhode Island in the summers. He moved to Rhode Island in 1977, and Brother Dyer brought him into the business. Like most short-term ideas, it lasted a career. Tad, as older brother, is one, years old, one year older than Anna. Anna's a quiet, quite serious co-manager of this sailing legend. She knows her dire history gained from all those years on the second floor office of the Anchorage. The history, how the boats came to be, and how they came to be built. She has the records going back in neatly handwritten ledgers going back to the 1930s. If you looked at the Harrishoff records, it wouldn't look any different. Just getting into the anchorage is an adventure. Finding the door to get in takes some doing. You walk west down the side of the building towards the river, look for a half-open door, go in, go up a set of winding stairs past old black and white pictures to a large open sun-drenched second story with a strip of windows looking east into the boat building shed. You could be in Maine. Their office has a feeling more of a fashion designer's atelier with fiberglass boat history hiding in the file cabinets and every nook and cranny covered with papers. I think more a freewheeling art gallery than marine industry institution. Down on the production floor is a prehistoric looking Dyer 29 deck mold looking more like an exhibit from the Museum of Natural History and in its shadow lie a series of plastic-covered molds for the core offering, the Dyer Dink, and multiple modes for the Dyer Dow, the main man in the line, and the midget. More on those in a minute. Anywhere between four and ten veteran fiberglass men, many of them of Portuguese descent, have knocked off at 3.30 for the day. Warren is majority Portuguese, going back to their fishing and boat building roots in the 19th century. But with the windows rattling in the west wind, you can still hear the ticking of the old second floor clock. All they need in the office is a dog or cat sleeping in the corner to complete the ambience of old New England boatyard. Brother Tad wears the overalls in the team, and they have seen plenty of polyester resin. While I waited for Anna, Tad and I riffed and played Who Do You Know? with 50 years of boat building personalities. They knew my father, who was in his early 90s, when he ran Pearson back in the 60s and 70s, and was a stalwart from the golden age of the fiberglass boat building world. Read the book Heart of Glass. It's all there, the history of fiberglass boat building going back to World War II. On we go to the Dyer Interview, Volume 1. This was my first face-to-face -face interview since we launched in the pandemic in May 2020. This was my first interview with a mask on. Anna and I, we were both a little hesitant on how to proceed. But hey, we're from the same sailing generation in Rhode Island. Everybody knows everybody. And so we just broke the ice and dove in. The first question was really, 
all about the design. I read the transcript of my interview with Anna, and I realize it's not always easy to get the flow of an interview with someone you never met. Anna was a little bit intimidated by the blue Yeti microphone I stuck on the filing cabinet next to us. And after all, it was the first face-to-face interview I've been able to do since the Conversations with Classic Boats first aired in May with that profile of Dolphin, the Newport 29. But in our defense, we had done our homework before coming to Warren, and it did inform our questions. Why the Dow? What is a Dow? Anna had a very direct answer. Her grandfather was a traditionalist. Just as the last design in 1955, the Dyer 29, channeled the main lobster boat, the nine-foot dinghy in question, the Dyer Dow, echoed ancient times. Both Grampy and Grammy liked traditional design. Full stop. Grampy liked um, old... And Grampy's Bill Dyer, right? Bill Dyer. Right. I'm sorry. Um, He liked old designs. Okay. The Dow is the Egyptian Dow. Yep. Okay, I get that. It's based... The okay, design so, is based on it. So that's what his idea, that's why it has the flat fronts like that? Is that, is that why that, is yeah. that why it's got the edges yeah. like that? Because a dow was a reed boat, okay, yep. with flexible, you know, in other words, it was not a rigid structure. No, right? I know. It was kind of like, if you think about it, the inflatable of its day, right? right. Yeah. Um, okay, so yeah. that's why he liked that, yeah. he liked that yeah, design. Yeah, he liked that design. And his explanation made sense. Her grandfather had an eye for traditional design and ancient names. He preferred to classify his boats by length. The 10-footer, the Dyer Dink, as we call it, was an elegant round-bottom rowing style craft with lovely sailing characteristics, but limited load capacity. It had the trademark two-part mast and then 65 square feet of sail. It came with oars, spruce from Maine, and had the traditional bronze orlac assembly well-known to all dire owners. It was a sailing dinghy that could be rowed. It was the Alfa Romeo. It was the MG of early frostbite sailing in the 1930s. The Dyer Dow had a very different heritage. It was the Ford 150, bestseller, good at what it does. The second question of what is a Dow sent me to the library. Whence Dow? The story of Dows spans thousands of years and at least three continents. For many centuries, boats that sailed on the Indian Ocean were called Dows. Almost all of them used a triangle or lanteen sail. That made them different than the boats that evolved on the Mediterranean, which were in turn different than the other basic design from the China Seas, the junk. Three styles of ships developed in the ancient world. On the Med, Triremes and trade boats had small square sails and outboard steering rudders. On the China Seas, China junks with their tall forecastles, multiple masts, unique accordion rigging, and sternpass rudder exist in basically the same state today. In the Indian Arabian waters, dows ruled with their triangular sails and stitched hull design. The running characteristic of a dow is not so much the sail, but the hull construction. It's, quote, stitched construction, unquote, made by sewing the hull boards together with fibers, cords, or thongs. The earliest surviving example of a sewn boat was found beside the Great Pyramid of Giza, itself the descendant of ancestors that go back to Egypt's primitive times. Sewn boats are mentioned by ancient Roman writers, from poets to the author of Rome's Standard Dictionary. Chances are that Odysseus and Aeneas got out of Troy with a sewn boat on their way home. Fully stitched construction was the fiberglass of the first six centuries of the first millennium. Ocean-going Indian ships were double-ended, with hull planks flush and stitched with the stitches crossed and penetrating through the planks. Why do they think they had to do a lot of bailing? They must have been pretty wet. For those of you who want to follow up, 
Read Princeton University's Lionel Casson, C-A-S-S-O-N, Ships and Seamanship in the Ancient World. The story is all there. We tend to associate the Tao with Arab sailors. Alexander Kent has his hero, Captain Balatha, fighting off the Barbary pirates in Dows off North Africa in the mid-1790s. But the fact is that in the Indian Ocean, the design dominated the waters adjoining the Arabian Peninsula right up to the 15th century, when the arrival of the Portuguese opened the area to European designs. Marco Polo saw sewn boats at the Straits of Hormuz off Oman. He took a dim view of them in Book 1, Chapter 18, and a quote, There were twine, and with it stitched the planks of the ship altogether. It keeps well and is not corroded by seawater, but it will not stand well in a storm. This from a 1903 translation of Marco Polo's voyages. The fact is that large sewn boats of 40 to 60 tons, half the size of an American whale ship, were still plying the waters of East Africa and Sri Lanka in the 20th century. So what hath Bill Dyer wrought in 1949 when he moved the nine-foot dow from plywood to fiberglass and then converted the dink in 1954? The combination of an old freight-hauling design and the brand-new material, glass fiber, that he had heard about and investigated. This was going to be the new thing in the boat industry. And 6,000 hulls later, as we said, the Dyer Dow is the longest continuously produced fiberglass boat in the world. The first, first resin mm-hmm. referred to as... Are you called them resin as no, opposed to... Called, no, they were called Dyer Resin Dows. Dyer Resin Dows. Dyer Resin Dows. Oh, that's... D-Y-E-R-E-S-I-N. Dyer Resin Dows. The tag was, that's what the tag Isn't was. Isn't that interesting? Because people didn't know what fiberglass was? Right. So yeah. this, it just says plastic. Plastic. Dyer Resin Dows. And that looks like it was... Uh, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. July of 49. So there okay. was an overlap. So there was an overlap of the plywood boats and the fiberglass boats. Uh, but let's say the summer of 49 was the beginning of the fiberglass era. Yeah. Really. Mom always told me that um, Grampy heard about fiberglass during the war. Mm-hmm. And right after the war ended, I guess he went, she said he spent some time at Owens Corning. He was a. Okay. So they had the glass. He saw the glass fiber and saw, saw what. Well, he it saw how it was. How it, yeah. Yeah. And he spent, I think she told me he spent at least a week, if not two. The Dow at War. The story of the Dyer Dow started with World War II. The U.S. Navy was looking for a tender for its smaller and often non-steel vessels, subchasers, minesweepers, PT boats. The Elko torpedo boat had the most obvious need. Built in Camden, New Jersey, they came up with their crews to be trained in what we called in our day, Bend. Today, we call it Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Four miles away at the Harrisoft Manufacturing Company, Captain Nat had revolutionized torpedo boat design in the late 19th century with fuels, fueled engines using liquids and a bow torpedo launcher. A nine-foot plywood dire dow set athwartship on a small box amidship in a PT boat was in fact the backrest for the boat driver of that boat. JFK in PT-109, if you remember Cliff Robertson played the role in the movie, must have spent a lot of time with his back to a plywood dire dow. Anna Jones tells the whole story in detail on the Mystic Seaport site, and I'm going to quote her account. The dow goes to the Pacific. In 1943, as the war in the Pacific grew, the Navy needed small, portable, floating transportation. Dire dows were the boats that answered the call to service. Dows were used as rescue units when ships were attacked, mini lifeboats. Stacks of dire dows, made in plywood, but essentially the same shape as the boat we know today, were dropped in the water over shipwrecks to shelter survivors until rescue. Anna describes those early uses during wartime. As she said, 
The government war department came to, his, her, to my grandfather, Bill Dyer, during World War II and asked him to build a boat that would fit in nine foot of space and hold nine men. The original Niners were plywood, itself a new material for boats, and were already being used on PT boats. I have pictures of them being loaded on big transport planes. Also, I have a picture showing nine of our men standing out here on the Warren River in one boat, and it was still floating. About a year ago, I had a call from a customer who told me that he was stationed in the South Pacific during the war, and they took a boat and a rag and learned how to sail. That's how they learned to sail. In 1949, the first fiberglass sailing and rowing dinghy based on the plywood nine-footer during the war was built. Not the first boat ever built out of fiberglass, but the Dow, again, as we say, longest continuously built fiberglass boat in production today. You know from our prior episodes that we love the mystery of missing plans. When it came to the need for a utility craft, youth trainer, Bill Dyer called on Phil Rhodes, who had been the designer of the original Dyer 10 in 1934, to do the Dow. No one really seems to remember who got or took on the assignment for the Dow. Tad Jones remembers the name Wilcott, I think it was, W-I-L-L-C-O-T-T, in the Rhodes office on some set of plans, but there is no proof positive. It's another design plan mystery like the Harrisoff Alarian Mysteries. But the Dow's vital statistics, length, 9 feet, 1 and 3 eighths inches. Beam, 4 feet, 6 and 3 eighths inches. Depth, 21 and 1 eighths inches. Hull weight, 104 pounds for the row version, 106 pounds for the sail model. Sail area, 45 square feet. The dinghy DNA for the 9-footer was to create a stable tender for a cruising boat that could hold four adults and their gear. To provide stability, it was given hard chines up front instead of the more conventional round bottom found on the dinghies of its day. With a wide beam and full bow sections to add more stability and load carrying capacity, it had three ports. So you could row it with one person and three more could sit and stay out of the bottom and keep their pants dry. 104 pounds of displacement and had a working payload of 650 pounds. The concept was a boat that rode easily, towed behind a cruising boat, and carried a simple sailing rig. Multi-purpose classic. I can attest in the Darling family over the years that the Dyer Dow filled all of these roles. The Darling Dyer never flipped off Cuddy Hunk in the shop like an inflatable did, and it was the perfect place to maroon my younger brother during his timeouts. Its most important use, however, was at the mooring. It entertained my father for hours after we dropped the hook in any anchorage. It was his magic carpet to allow him to inspect the contents of a given harbor and come down and come back for a pre-dinner full report on this boat and that boat. According to a piece from SailDesign.com online, the Dyer Dow is one of the classic forgotten beginner sailboats, nicknamed the bathtub. No offense to our friends in Warrens, the nickname bathtub has some justification. It looks like one, it floats like one, and it sinks like one. Ask any shivering frostbiter who gets plucked out after a capsize when everyone's bailing, bailing, bailing. Crash boat operation on a nine-footer frostbite course calls for extreme upper body strength. Stories of the Dow's versatility abound. Blue Water Sailing, in an article, tells the story of an Ohio gentleman who wanted to cruise by himself. He needed a boat for that, a boat that would fit on top of his station wagon for the round trip from Ohio to Maine, hold him plus his waterproof duffel, camping beer, gear, and tent. With that setup, he explored Penobscot Bay for a week every summer, and as the article said, quote, lived under the sun and stars, communed with the eagles, and explored the bay in his nine-foot dow. It was all he needed, unquote. Huck Finn in nine feet of bulletproof fiberglass. Since 1949, when the first fiberglass nine-footer came out, some 6,000 of the Dows have emerged from 57 Miller Street. About 10 a year new boats. 
these days. On to frostbite. A good number of these boats have found their way to frostbiting. There are bragging rights for the largest fleet, hovering right around 50 boats. When we were Mystic Seaport, we visited the site of the reigning champion. Out at the end of the West Wharf, before you get to the lighthouse, there sits a fleet in and out of the water of 50 dyers, each with a unique story on its transom. Each member of the fleet is, quote, adopted by a regional yacht club or family from Newport to New York. The local clubs are represented 100%. Wadawamic, Stonington Harbor, Ram Island, New London, Fisher's Island, Mystic Corinthians, Mason's Island, Watch Hill, Thames, Essex, and my personal favorite, Mystic River Mudheads. Yes, there is a New York Yacht Club, as there is an Ida Lewis Yacht Club, and huh, a North Cove Yacht Club, which was, for obscure reasons, the ex World Trade Center sailing hub. Connecticut weighs in with Indian Harbor and Riverside and Norwalk and Pequot, all big dire locales. Westchester has Larchmont and American. Santa has reindeer. Mystic Dire Fleets has its Yacht Club Fairy Godmothers looking after it. With that naming right comes an annual endowment donated to the seaport for the upkeep and maintenance of the fleet. It's Dire Community Sailing in Nine Footers. For decades, Kevin Farrar in New London has been sewing the sails for the fleet. Knowing Kevin as I do from the IOD days, I am guessing the color combinations are his alone. During the sailing season, you can look right going north, past exit 89 and 95, pulling off would be safer, and see the Dyer Dow fleet at work. They are the training boat for the Joseph Conrad Summer Sea Camp, and every October, at least until pandemic fall 2020, Mystic put on its annual Dyer Dow Derby a fun, semi-competitive regatta to celebrate the fleet. You can find it on the Mystic Seaport Dyer Dow fleet page. We'll have it on the website for conversations with classic boats. mysticseaport.org slash learn slash sailing slash dire dash dow dash fleet. That will get you there. The staunchest competitor for biggest fleet honors appears to be Mamaronek operating from fleets at the Beach Point Yacht Club on the west side of Mamaroneck Harbor, facing the Long Island Sound. Sailmaker for the Mamaroneck fleet, Paul Baudin of Doyle on City Island, shows me a fleet roster that numbers in the mid-70s. I wrote an article for Windcheck in 2007, 17, excuse me, chronicling a busman's holiday tour of frostbiting venues on the north side of Long Island Sound. Mind you, I never got out into a dire dow between the wind and the snow. But I did see, from time to time, well over 35 boats sailing in the northeast niche of Mamaroneck Harbor behind Milton Harbor. So at this time, the largest nine-footer fleet designation goes undecided. The Mamaroneck Beach Point fleet claims to have the largest fleet. Well, it's Mamaroneck. Pequot is not that big. Norwalk. The Norwalk. Pequot, yeah. Milford. I don't know Milford. Yeah, Milford doesn't uh, have that many. Milford doesn't have a very big fleet, yeah. but but the three, Mamaroneck, Norwalk, and, and Pequot. Mamaroneck's by far the biggest, I would say, having gone uh, and watched them. Has all of those. Together they have a very yeah. large number. Yeah. When, I fir- when I first started here, frostbiting was still big. Yeah. By the early 90s, it had gone it down. aged out, yeah. Over the years, you can imagine with 500 dozen boats that there would be some crazy dire tricks. Anna has, as a child, grown up with stories of Grams and more than a few anecdotes. She elaborates on the World War II sail training story that we talked about before. So in 36 years, you've had some unusual phone calls where someone calls and says, (laughs) I dropped it out of an airplane or, you know, I forgot I left my dynamite in it and it went off or 
what are what are some of those interesting things that people called you and said? Gee, I never would have thought somebody would have done, done that with a dire down. Any anything uh, come to mind? No. You don't have to prioritize them. I mean, no, yeah. I I mean I've I've had a phone call when you were talking about the plywood ones during mm-hmm. World War Two. I had a phone call from a customer who told me that um, he and his guys were stuck on an island. Mm-hmm somewhere in the South Pacific, and they figured out a way to put a sail on it. Okay. And they taught themselves to sail. And he said they liked the boat so much that at the end of the war, when... They were done. When everything was done, and the government was sending all gear... Surplus. Surplus to um, storage facilities on, in California somewhere. Right, yeah. He and a couple of his buddies went and got one. themselves. Got one. Okay. Because so they were they were having been saved in the South Pacific, <laughs> they were they wanted to go back and have it for themselves. My own personal odd question is what is that blue? Look in every dyer, it's the same color blue on the inside. She tells the story. How did you pick the color blue that's in the boats? That blue is ubiquitous for years when you look in the bottom of the boat. Mm-hmm. Right? I have pictures after picture of them sitting it at docks. It has to do, I, I, if I have to hazard a guess, it was our grandmother. Okay. Um, because early ones were actually a deeper blue. Okay, okay. Um, 50s and 60s. Okay. Um, Almost like the chair. Okay, right. Uh, um, and then when I started here, it was a color called Chrysler Blue, which is probably the one that you're referring to. Okay. I believe that started in the late 70s. That's Lee Iacocca Blue. That's what I call it. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's Chrysler he loved blue. that color. He was he worked at, uh, at um, you know, he invented the Mustang when he was at Ford. Yeah. Then he went to thing. And, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. That and that's... it's just stayed that, even though that color was discontinued. <laughs> oh, the color itself, the paint was discontinued? Yes, yeah, it was discontinued back in the early 90s. Okay. And so everything we've come up with since then has been a, a we mix. Ah, so you have to mix it to get to that color. Okay, okay. Yep, dire blue. There have been some interesting requests of the builder over the years. Dyer already would give you a monogram version with a security code glassed into the floor, the better to protect your prize dinghy from thieves. But the stories include some very unusual build requests, like the story of the plaid boat. The CEO of a well-known spirits brand wished to immortalize his own personal tartan in his Dyer Dow. Anna tells the story. We did a plaid one. Oh, it's up on the wall. Oh, a plaid one. Oh, that's good. I like yeah, that. Yeah, we did two. Yeah. He was, those were for the um, owner of Jameson's. Okay. Um, and one of them is a Mamaroneck frostbite boat now. Okay. <laughs> so I can see it when I go. And then imagine this. How about the two-tone, two-part painted boat, a la the Roy Lichtenstein America's Cup Boat of the 90s. For a benefit in New York, a group commissioned the following auction item. Hull, bottom of a two on the side of the hull. Sail, top of the two. With the sail up, it's a two. Shades of Dolly and Warhol. It probably had to be there. As we head to colder weather, I'm reminded that frostbiting still is the raison d'etre, of then and now dire dinghies. A picture in a book called The Dinghy Book, pictures in 1932, I believe, a group of lunatic early hardwater sailors at Manhasset Bay. Those were the sailors of the early dire ten-footers, or dinks, along with the popular D-class boats. These were lapstrake, bright-finished boats, that looked more like interclubs than they did the delicate dire dink. 
but then along chugged the Dow to dominate the frostbiting scene. Completely appropriate that Grampy Dyer in 1932 was among the pioneers of frostbiting and contributed his elegant roads design as the core boat of the frostbite movement, only to see the workhorse take over. So when you're out there in the 2020-21 season, whether it's with model boats or classic frost boats, we hope, masked and social distanced, you'll think back to 1932. FDR waiting to take over from Herbert Hoover. History does repeat. Happy days can be here again. We hope to have a highly interactive experience with you Dow owners. Send in your pictures. We'll put them on the website. Next time in the holiday broadcast, we will have another twin story. I have neglected Sparkman's and Stevens. This story, the SNS twins. Remember the Patty Duke show. This is a sailing story that goes something like that. The famous one, Finisterre, Bermuda race winner, design classic along with its colorful skipper, Carlton Mitchell. And the local star, Fidelio, from Noank, Connecticut. Sister ships. So fair sailing, stay well, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Help us push us to the next level of subscribers. We're up to 1,000. We're headed for 2,000. 2,000 listeners of Conversations with Classic Boats. And remember our friends at Team One and Windcheck. This episode was produced by Ned Darling. And we'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood would